This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I'll be reading two 1953 short stories by Sylvia Jacobs, The Sportsman and Old Purpley Puss, which were published in Vortex Science Fiction Volume 1, Number 1, and Number 2, respectively. Uh, today, for music, I chose a selection of three soundscapes that explore composing recorded and generated sounds in different ways. We're starting with the 2011 composition uh, Points Critiques by Horatio Vagagon, a micro-montage where recorded sound is broken up into tiny, short sound bursts and arranged into a composition. There are two aspects of micro-montage. One part is the exploration of using micro-sounds, which are incredibly short time bursts of sound, and the other is that of audio montage, a collage of found sounds. Um, after this, I'm going to play two earlier compositions by different composers that explore microsounds and audio montage separately. Uh, I'll follow this with the 1986 composition River Run by Barry Truax, where he uses computer-generated microsounds called grains. And lastly, I'll play the 1963-64 composition Heterozygote by Luke Ferrari, a sound collage where Ferrari takes found sounds out of context and creates an atmosphere. So the current soundscape that we're listening to, uh, Point Critique by Horatio Vagon, was composed in 2011. Um, it's a micro-montage where the recorded sound is broken up. Yeah. And he is an Argentinian composer who was born in 1943 and specializes in micromontage, granular synthesis, and microsound. So, next I'll be reading Old Purpley Puss by Sylvia Jacobs, which was published in Vortex Science Fiction, July of 1953.
juggle the chromosomes of Earth's creatures, a sample of anthropod, a dash of celiopod, an instinct, an extinct carnivorous reptile, shake them up, and what have you got? Old Purpley Puss by Sylvia Jacobs. The inter- interrupted beep of the tube annunciator sounded over the bo- howling, the chittering, the yammering whistling and barking of the fake extraterrestrial zoo outside the laboratory window. Sam Baldwin, journeyman, life technician, interrupted his gloomy reflections on the prostitution of his skill to remove the rolled daily newspaper from the tube. Idly, he opened it. A glaring ad for a trade school stared him in the face. Learn to create life, the ad declared. Learn the techniques that make men like gods. Study in your spare time. Increase your earnings. Send for our free aptitude test today. Hundreds of jobs await qualified men and women. So long as people eat, food industries will need trained life technicians. Why stagnate in a rut? Prepare to enter this fascinating, uncrowded field. And crowded nuts, Sam said aloud to nobody in particular. Except the embryos of imaginary extraterrestrial creatures in his exogenesis tanks. The life industries, as Sam knew only too well, had somehow acquired a reputation for being glamorous, like newspaper reporting, deep sea diving, and movie acting. They attracted 50 starry-eyed, eager applicants for every opening. If you threw all the working life technicians in the country out of a job tomorrow, you still couldn't place one year's crop of trade school graduates. It was an exacting, nerve-wracking, dirty, routine job, and still the ambitious graduates came on. Sam turned the page of the paper trying to find some item sufficiently interesting to take his mind off his troubles. A few life technicians were lucky enough to get into a niche where they could retain their self-respect, feel that they were genuinely useful, creating improved food animals. But after ten years in the trade... Here, Sam was juggling chromosomes of earth animals, taking a characteristic of an anthropod here, a cell pod there, an extent carnivorous reptile perhaps, mixing them into an illogical mess of biologic hash, as specified by the screwy imagination of one W.W. Weinstein, showman extraordinary. The worst of it was that the suckers were getting wise. As more and more men came back from trips to the stars, told their friends and relatives that all the suitable planets found so far were inhabited by plain, ordinary, Earth-type animals and unremarkable human beings, the suckers were staying away from Weinstein's so-called Otherworld Zoo in droves. And when the gate receipts dropped, Sam's salary check was liable not to come through.
A news story momentarily captured Sam's attention. Six people claimed to have seen a lighted spaceship crash in the ocean at night close to shore, and many more had seen a fiery shriek descend from higher altitudes before the submersion. Astronomers interviewed stated unequivocally that the phenomenon had unquestionably been a meteorite, not a mass hallucination but certain public-spirited citizens who saw what they saw, what they were certain was a crash rounded up a deep-sea diver in a bar. He took his boat out to the site, dressed in, and went down with the avowed purpose of rescuing any survivors. After search, he reported that whatever had come down, whether spaceship or meteorite, had apparently slid off the edge of a reef into water deeper than his air hose was long. But as he was coming up, the divers saw on a shoal, partially out of the water, a creature which he declared was not native to those waters. It resembled an octopus, but had purple fur and unlike any known species of octopus, could stand erect on its tentacles in an atmospheric medium. The diver told reporters that he had seen the creature at close range. In the beam of a powerful diving light, that he had attempted to capture it, but it had escaped him. While printing only verified facts and direct quotes, the newspaper managed to leave a distinct impression with its readers that this strange creature might have been an intelligent being from a spaceship. Disgusted, Sam Baldwin turned to the page. Weinstein wasn't the only one, he reflected, who lived by taking advantage of people's credulity. And as for that diver... What some people would stoop to just to get their names in the papers. The bar incident suggested the man was a victim of delirium trems. To take the bad taste out of his mouth, Baldwin read every word of a scholarly, constrained report by the newspaper's science editor on an inside page telling of the discovery of yet another Earth-like planet inhabited as usual, by Earth-like life forms, with a social development comparable to that of medieval Europe. Sam didn't understand all the references to the theory of parallel evolutions, but he agreed heartily with the general principle. The door of the lab swung open, and Weinstein, with his usual bubbling optimism and aggressiveness, burst in. "'Sammy, my boy!' Weinstein declared." pausing long enough in his jumping around to clap Baldwin painfully on the shoulder. I've got it! I've got it at last! Got what? Baldwin asked sourly. St. Vitus dance? I've got an idea for the greatest attraction this little old show has ever exhibited. We're in the chips, Sammy boy. 
We're in the chips. You see, this here spaceship crashed in the ocean, and the pilot got out of the wreck. Funny-looking thing. I read it, Baldwin said tartly. That's a bunch of baloney about its ship. I, the experts say it was a meteorite. You mean somebody caught that purple-furred octopus? Why go all to all the trouble of catching it? Weinstein demanded logically. That's what I'm paying you for, Sammy, my boy. All we need is the man who saw it, and he's hopping an ion liner right now. Just talk to him on the VP. Did he look sober? Baldwin asked. He better be sober. I'm paying him diving wages plus travel expenses just to come here and describe that thing to you. Give the sucker a good show for their money. That's my motto. In other words, you're paying this diver several hundred dollars you already owe me? Now just be patient a little longer, Sammy boy. As soon as we get this new attraction build, I'll catch up on all your back wages and give you a raise to boot. It'll be a sensation. The way I have it figured, see, this octopus will deliver a lecture on astronomy in general. And its own planet in particular. We'll have it talk English, of course, with maybe a few words in its native tongue here and there. Now listen, Baldwin said. You know very well it takes me six months to create one of these attractions, even with no vocal apparatus or a simple pattern of nonverbal sound. Something capable of learning as many words as a parrot. I might produce in a year. But a brain with a complicated verbal memory capacity to do it but using human chromosomes? And you know that it's against the law. It's ten years in jail if they catch anybody doing it. Ten years for me, not you. I don't like this idea anyway. It stinks. It's the worst hoax you've pulled yet. You better get yourself another technician. Now, Sammy boy, cool down. We'll work this out. Stick with me. And you'll wear Zycons. So you can't create a talking octopus fast. And we gotta have it fast before the suckers forget what they've seen in the paper. All right. So we put a sound tape in the cage. What's wrong with that? Nothing, except that it's another confidence game. The only way you're going to collect your money is to help me earn it. Sure, I could get another technician. They're a dime a dozen. But could I get one from the employment agency before this diver gets here? It's got to be you, Sammy boy, and I ain't going to tell nobody you done it. You don't need to be squeamish about that because this will be billed as the real thing. No reproductions of what I've seen on Cyrus 6. Save it save it for the suckers the nearest you ever got to cyrus six was coney island but the upshot of it was that sam baldwin to his eternal shame and disgust interviewed the publicity seeking diver Sam had his oil paints out, a canvas board set up, with a man-sized octopus standing illogically erect in atmosphere, roughed it in charcoal, 
Sam had a pretty good idea of what the alleged description would be like before he met the diver, not only because of the newspaper account, but because he knew how the human mind worked. The human mind, Sam was convinced, was actually incapable of conceiving a truly alien form. That was amply proved by Weinstein's collection of antique science fiction illustrations dating from the first half of the 20th century. The paper they were drawn on was crumbling with age, but the principle still applied. Even now, when men could create living things, moving replicas of their conceptions, men could combine characteristics of two or more earth creatures in their imaginations. The Assyrians had used such figures in their architecture, the ancient Greeks had incorporated them into their mythology. The imagination could be transplanted. Creatures evolved from a watery medium into air. It could enlarge an amoeba or a beetle. It could endow a caterpillar with the intelligence and stand it up illogically on two of its many legs, for it is unseemly for the brain case of an intelligent species to drag in the dust. But the human imagination could never rival natural nature in originality, Sam was certain. The diver's idea of an intelligent alien, therefore, would be a combination of several earth forms. It would have a human brain, human erect posture, human size, it would have to have the oxygen intake of a mammal to have a human brain and endocrine personality, but it would be superficially resembling a cold-blooded form, have gills incapable of handling that much, much oxygen. Its shape would be specialized for supporting aquatic medium, but it would have to walk on land for no better reason than the fact that humans walked on land. It would, in other words, be biological hash, and Sam would inevitably have to make some hidden adjustments, such as growing bones inside apparent tentacles, lungs inside apparent gills, while nature laughed up her sleeve at such a non-survival type. Sam and the diver worked together, the diver making verbal corrections while Sam painted, till the oil painting was close enough to the creature the diver had seen, the painting being the model Sam would work towards in the selection of chromosomes. One thing could be said for the diver. He had a much more accurate idea than the average person of how a real octopus looked and acted so he could clearly describe the points at which the creature he imagined to be an extraterrestrial varied from standard. Finally, Sam washed his brushes in turpentine and said to his visitor, Come cle clean with me, Peyton. Do you honestly believe there was a spaceship and that it was built and operated by aliens that look like this picture? The diver grinned. Well, somebody must believe it, or I wouldn't be here. Enough of the public has to believe it to pay the cost of this fake, 
I'm going to create, but that doesn't mean I have to believe it. It doesn't even mean that Weinstein believes it. He's a man totally without conscience. What you tell me is not for publication. I didn't see this thing swimming up from the place where the ship was supposed to have gone down. Never said I did. And that question, one of the reporters asked me whether I thought this fur was some kind of clothing. It never occurred to me. Gave kind of a false impression to print the question at all. After I said no. All I believe is that the thing didn't belong in those waters. Or any waters, for that matter. An octopus can't stand up like that without water to support it. I've had enough of them alive on deck, so I ought to know. You didn't see the meteorite yourself? No, I was inside the bar. The fellow who came to get me is pretty reliable. He operates a charter boat for sport fishing parties. Known him for years. I'd take his tip on a sunken boat or something to the extent that I'd look for it if I was diving in the same area anyway. I checked the chart. The bottom alongside that reef isn't so deep, but what I could salvage something down there was helium gear. If there was an alien spaceship, I could make plenty of money by bringing it up, selling it to some guy like Weinstein here, or show it myself. But I haven't got enough confidence in it, so that I'd spend several thousand dollars gearing up just for that one job. That's all I wanted to know, Baldwin said. Weinstein came in and rubbed his hands in satisfaction at the sight of the completed picture. Looks like you boys are getting along fine, he exulted. I think we ought to bill it as just another animal without the phonograph record, Baldwin said. Peyton here doesn't have much basis for believing the thing was an intelligent extraterrestrial, and I'd be willing to bet money it wasn't. I'm ashamed to be party to perpetrating such deception. You shouldn't feel like that, Weinstein said soothingly. Look at it this way. All the planets that might be suitable for life haven't been visited yet, have they? Why, there must be billions of them in the galaxy. Just because the ones that have been found so far have Earth-type life, that doesn't prove there isn't any other kind. Maybe we're doing the public a favor, anticipating the newsreels. That's an improvement over the line you hand the suckers. That you've actually been to planets where beasties like those out there live. But it still doesn't salve my conscience. If you'd only admit these things are products of the imagination, ex extrapolations on life forms that might exist in nature, it would be all right. I should think people would pay to see animals frankly build as imaginary, the same as they'd pay for imaginative pictures and stories. That's where you're wrong, Weinstein assured him. People like to be fooled. It would take all the fun out of it, if they knew how we think up these things.
Baldwin still didn't like it, but he managed to produce the purple furred octopus in five months, spurred on by the fact that bill collectors were hounding him, and he really needed his back pay. The recorded lecture on astronomy Baldwin preferred to have nothing to do with. It was 100% Weinstein. In fact, a critical listener might have detected the very inflections of the owner of the zoo. But the customers in general weren't too critical. The creature moved, it ate, it lived, and apparently it talked. That was enough to keep people staring, making them come back again and bringing their friends. With the SPCA sponsoring a bill which, if passed, would make it illegal to keep an intelligent extraterrestrial in captivity, Weinstein benefited from the publicity. By changing the recorded lecture frequently, he inadverted suspicion. He came through with the promised raise, but on one excuse and another put Baldwin off on the back pay. Baldwin was passing the cage that housed the purple-furred octopus one day, while the lecture was in full swing. He noticed among the specters an earnest young man who was industrial taking notes. "'You're a reporter?' Baldwin asked him. "'If you are, the boss will want to see you.' "'I'm a graduate student,' the young man said." I'm doing my thesis for a doctorate on psychology of this being. Apparently, he doesn't speak by rote memory, but he seems to be deficient in hearing. Doesn't notice questions. Oh, no, Baldwin moaned and fled. He confronted Weinstein in the ticket office. This has gone too far, he told him. People actually believe in this thing. I can't hold my head up. I'm through. I'm quitting. I want back pay as of now. I can't give it to you, Sammy boy. I just can't. If you want to leave, you'll have to take this week's pay and trust me for the rest. Here, I was just making out your paycheck. Trust you? You expect someone who knows how dishonest you are to trust you? What do you mean you can't give it to me? I know how much money you've been taking in. Sure, but you don't know how much money I've been paying out. I've had to pay up the mortgage on this place, or they would have thrown us out. Things were bad for a long time before we built this new attraction. I was way behind on the feed bill, and as soon as my creditors found out I was taking in a little money, they all landed on me at once. Just about got up. caught up with my bills as of yesterday. What about today's receipts? I know damn well you taken enough on Saturday to pay me. Sammy boy, I was robbed. I was held up. You're lying. Now, Sammy, you called me a lot of things, and I've just taken it, but I don't like being called a liar. It's true, so help me. I was robbed of over 500 bucks. Just to show you, I mean, right by you, You can take any asset of the show that's worth the same as your back pay. You think I'd want any part of this cheap racket? Baldwin demanded and stormed out. He cashed his last paycheck at the bar 
and as he was crying into his fourth glass of beer, he struck up an acquaintanceship with a rather pluckish-looking individual with curly black hair, whom he had seen around the place several times before. Before he knew it, he had told all of his troubles to the man, whose name turned out to be Harry Sanders. "'It wouldn't do any good to sue him,' Baldwin concluded his recital. "'I know him. He'd just conceal his liquid assets, and I'd wind up doing just what he wants me to do, taking some part of his no-good show for back pay he owes me.'" "'Why don't you take this octopus? That's the main attraction,' Sanders asked him. "'That's the one thing he wouldn't give me. Wouldn't take five or six months to make another, and he'd lose money. Besides, what would I do with the damned thing?' "'Look,' Sanders said. "'You want to expose his racket, don't you? You've done that a long time ago. But you've also wanted to give him a chance to make enough money to pay you what he owes you.' How would you like to expose him and get money, too? I don't see how I could do that. I'm in the show business, too. Or I was. Used to make the rounds of the carnivals with a trained seal act in, the, in a trailer. I got my troubles, too. Both my seals died. One caught influenza from the other. Before I could separate them. So, you furnished the octopus. I furnished the trailer and my contact for show spots. We'll change the recording. Have the octopus tell he's a fake. Tell the truth about the whole extraterrestrial zoo racket. People will pay money to hear a debunking act, too, you know. Say, I think you got something there, Baldwin exclaimed, laughing. That would be a, a good joke on Weinstein, all right. Before you could get another octopus gestated, half the people in the country would know it was baloney. But how am I going to give it, get him to give it to me? He said you could take any part of the show for back pay, didn't he? Yes, but it goes without saying he didn't mean his main attraction. How do you know what he means if he didn't say it? Don't ask him. Just take the octopus. After he goes home. I've still got a key to the place, Baldwin said. I wouldn't have to climb the fence or break into a cage just doesn't seem quite honest. Think about the public, not Weinstein. It's quite... It isn't quite honest to let him be fooled, is it? When you could change all that? You created this octopus. You didn't get paid for the time you spent working on it. You'd have a pretty good case in court of law proving it was your property. But I don't think it'll come to that. If Weinstein reported it to the police, the papers would make a big joke of it. He knows that under... Those circumstances, you'd tip them off to the octopus being a fake. The story would break right in his own town, where it would do him the most harm. Well, if he doesn't report it, we'll get as far away as possible with our act. You got a couple of points there, you know. If I had about one more glass of beer, I think I'd go through with it. No sooner said than done, Sanders declared. Bartender, fill him up. Baldwin left a note in the empty cage, which said, simply, I've taken you at your word, paid in full. 
If Weinstein reported his loss, the effects never caught up with the traveling show. Baldwin took particular delight in the composing of the new recording himself. He got all he thought about fakers in general into it. It was a crowd pleaser, all right. Sanders and Baldwin kept their admission price low, packed them in four shows a day, a quarter per head. Baldwin turned into a pretty good showman himself, now that he no longer felt he was putting something over on people. He gave a little demonstration of the life techniques on the side, with blown-up microscope slides. On a balmy night in San Diego, after the last show of the evening, Sanders remarked to his partner, I hope we'll have enough in the kitty to buy a new trailer soon. This wreck of mine is about to fall apart. I'm afraid old purpley puss is going to escape one of these nights. Escape? Baldwin said. Why should it? It doesn't know any kind of life but in a cage. It would be scared to go outside. I hope you're right. Sanders said. But I've been worried about it ever since you told me there isn't a replacement any place. I wonder whether Weinstein had another maid. He may have once started, but if he has it, it's still in the tank stage. He hasn't had time to finish one. I tell you what, before next summer, we'll have a spare. I know a lab where I can do the work this winter. If the thing got loose now, we just have to go out and round it up. The young couple drove up in an old trifib about ten the next morning. While Baldwin was getting tickets and change ready for the first show in the little ticket booth outside the tent that had been pitched over the trailer, Sanders was getting brooms and buckets together. It was his turn to take the canvas off Purpley Puss's cage and clean up inside. Say, are you the young fellow that runs this octopus show? The young man in the driver's seat asked Baldwin. Sure thing. What can I do for you? I got your critter, the young man said. I was skin diving early this morning and I saw it asleep. Halfway up a cliff along shore. Knew it right away was the one I saw on the show. Never saw another octopus like that. Me and a couple of friends of mine wound it up in a dragnet. Didn't hurt in any, I don't think. Make him give you a reward, Joe, the girl beside him put in. What did I tell you? Sanders demanded. Gosh, we are lucky. Before we'd ever known it's gone, we get it back. Wait a minute, Baldwin said. I've got to see if it's really ours before I pay you any reward. It's in the back of the car. Baldwin and Sanders looked at the creature on the car floor. It was secured with enough netting to hold a vigorous brown bear but it was struggling at the bonds. That's old purpley puss, all right, Saunders said. You're pretty rough on it, Baldwin said. I'll give you 50 now, and another 50 if we find there aren't any bones broken when we unwind it. It's a deal, the young man said, and Baldwin paid him. 
Sanders trundled up a baggage truck. Give us a hand, we'll roll it onto this. The three of them took the purple-furred octopus into the dimness of the tent. The canvas tarpon was still over the cage. Baldwin hauled it off and started to examine the cage. He wanted to find the weak place and repair it before they cut the net and loosened the purple-furred octopus again in its cage. Wait a minute, Baldwin exclaimed suddenly. Harry, turn on the light. Sanders complied. Do you see what I see? Baldwin asked. I do, Sanders said solemnly. Now we've got that spare. Only we may have to change the recording. Not necessary, a muffled voice said. Your language is ridiculously easy to master. If you'll only cut this net, I'll do anything for you. I'll even perform for you. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was Old Purpley Puss by Sylvia Jacobs, which was published in Vortex Science Fiction, July of 1953. Uh, I couldn't find very much about Sylvia Jacobs other than her writing. She published eight short stories and two essays between 1951 and 1969. Half of the stories were published between 1951 and 1953. She wrote one technical essay about assumptions science fiction writers make about oxa, helium, and breathing supplies for astronauts, and what that would actually be like based on her research and first-hand experience diving. The essay was articulate and well-researched, drawing from her personal experiences with diving, diving manuals, and the experiences of Jake Jacobs, a diver. So I thought that was pretty cool because the story is about a diver finding a octopus, purpley octopus, furry octopus, and... It turns out that Sylvia Jacobs was a diver. Um, uh, I also found that she was from uh, San Pedro, California, from a letter to the editor in 1958. She also wrote the article Marineland's Diver by Jake Jacobs, Chief, Chief Diver, Marineland of the Pacific, as told by Sylvia Jacobs in 1960. The Torrance Parker Collection at the L.A. Maritime Museum describes Harold Jake Jacobs as an abalone and argar fishery diver during and after World War II working in Southern California waters. After World War II, he became the first diver to work for Marine Land of the Pacific, which started off the coast of San Pedro joining them to dive in the large ocean fish tank displays.
And actually, after a lot of Googling, I did find uh, Sylvia Jacobs in two entries of the 1946 Conocological Club of Southern California minutes. And in the minutes of the Conocological Club, uh, it was talking about her finding the first known occurrence of, in Monterey, California of a certain kind of sea snail called a pedicurelia. California Newcomb. So I thought that was pretty cool too because in 1946 she did find, I guess, a sea snail that hadn't been found in that region before. And here was a story, you know, seven years later that she published about a diver finding a octopus alien. So right now we are listening to Luke Ferrari's Heterozygote, a piece of music concrete or antidotal music as he describes it, which was produced in 1963 to 1964. And before that, we heard uh, River Run by Barry Truax, which was composed in 1986, which was a piece of granular synthesis work. So I thought I would read a little bit of what uh, Luke Ferrari said about this piece that we're listening to. Heterozygote in biology means plant heredity of which is mixed. This means that in this composition, the tried experience is to fabricate a language being at the same time on musical and on dramatic plane. One could call this kind of music Ancidotic music, because if the organization of the events is purely musical, their choice purposes, their choice proposes situations being justified on two plans, that of the music and that of the antidote. The antidote is, however, rather little formulated and is likely of various interpretations. The listener is then invited to imagine his own antidote by rejecting, if necessary, that which the author proposes. More exactly, the author proposes an antidotic complex having possibly several significances. The work proceeds by an opening, is made up of eight scenes separated not by interludes, and if one wants to push the paradox further, one can say that the titles of the scenes are optional and that the interludes are also scenes, etc. So that was what uh, Luke Ferrari had to say about this piece that we're listening to right now, uh, Heterozygote.
So it looks like we just have enough time to read one more short story by Sylvia Jacobs. Uh, I will be reading The Sportsman, which was first published in Vortex Science Fiction, Volume 1, Number 2, in 1953. The Sportsman by Sylvia Jacobs. Oh, go on land, Blorblor said. There's no game down there. Nobody ever comes out here near the edge. You might... You make me tired, always yapping about conservation. It's enough to spoil a hunting trip. Maybe it's a closed area. It seems to me that a place like this, where nobody ever comes, must be a game preserve. Look, in the code book, Roll Roll answered. I did look in the code book. The place isn't even listed. I tell you, there can't pinch you for a closed area when the place isn't even listed. Okay, here goes, Roll Roll agreed. Hook your braces. They arced towards the mist-shrouded planet, screamed through the atmospheric layer. Roll Roll paused cautiously just inside the open airlock with his, while his companion went out to gather information. How does it look? Roll Roll called. Okay, the air's breathable anyway. Smells kind of funny, but it doesn't make you cough. Come on, what are you scared of? Roll Roll emerged hesitantly. Dissolver and Needler both on the ready. It was a green and pleasant place, but much hotter than at home. He avoided brushing against the strange prolific plants. He had heard that vegetable life on alien planets is sometimes carnivorous, though he had never encountered any actual examples. There was a flash of motion in the brush as the creature crossed the open space. Roll Roll noted that it had rear legs out of all proportion to the forward ones and curious, flexible appendages on the head. But it was a cute little thing for all its oddity. Blorblor's dissolver flashed and the odd little creature disappeared along with the surrounding brush. The rocket beneath glowed white hot. Green plants ten feet away from the impact burst into flames. What'd you do that for? Roll Roll demanded. You know it's illegal to hunt with a dissolver. Now you've gone and started a fire. What do we care? Blorbler retorted. The wind is away from the ship. What if it does burn a few acres of brush? The next hunting party to land here... We'll never know the difference. I bet nobody comes here once in a million years. Well, you could have had some meat if you used your needler. Meat? Blorblor exclaimed contemptuously. The thing wasn't big enough to bother taking home. Here come some bigger animals, Roll Roll cried, pointing to a small herd just topping a nearby knoll. Now that's more like it, Blorblor agreed. Funny-looking things, aren't they? Never saw anything like that before. Neither did I, Roll Roll said, except in a nightmare. 
Funny, they're all the same kind, but they've got different colored fur. They're all different sizes, Roll Roll pointed out. Maybe they have one color fur when they're young and change as they get older. Lots of animals do that. Say, they act real tame, don't they? They're coming right towards us. I told you no one ever hunts over here near the edge. They probably think we're just another kind of animal. Don't move. Let them get real close. I want to get a good aim. Wait, Roll Roll cried. The biggest one, he's looking at our ship. Now he's pawing the ground and making funny noises. I'd swear he was trying to tell us something. Aw, oh, you make me tired, Blorbler declared. What does an animal know about a spaceship? His needler spat four times, and four neatly drilled carcasses of assorted sizes laid on the ground. The shots must have frightened any other game in the vicinity, for they flushed nothing else. When they finally gave up and stowed their killing in the carbo-go compartment, it was getting late. Well, Roll Earl said, there's a couple of hundred light years between us and dinner, and I'm starved. Let's get going. All right, Blurbler agreed. You take the controls, and I'll ride in the back and skin these things. Do you think we ought to save the meat or just the hides? Well, I'm kind of squeamish, and as far as I'm concerned, I wouldn't care to eat a funny-looking critter like that. But you do as you choose. It's your game. I didn't get a thing. I wouldn't want to eat it either, but I might try a piece on my dog. Dogs got an instinct, you know. They can tell what's good to eat and what's poisonous. Say, I got an idea, Roll Roll said. Why don't we take the hides to Professor Smolsmol at the museum and find out what these things are? Good idea. You know, the sportsman's club gives a trophy to anybody that finds a new species. Might as well try for it. Maybe we better not take the hides to the museum after all. Maybe there's something illegal, Roll Roll reconsidered. Oh, you make me tired, Blurbler declared. Old Prof Smool Smool wouldn't rat on the wardens. Well, you take him then, Roll Roll said and he climbed into the control seat. You shot him. When they had escaped the planet's gravity and he could roll the carcass without lifting their weight, Roll Roll got busy on skinning. It proved surprisingly easy, and he soon had the skinned carcasses dumped out the airlock, except for a haunch saved for his dog. He moved forward and joined Roll Roll in the control compartment. Here's the hides, he said. Came off without a scrap of meat on them. They came off so easy. I don't think I got all of them. Seems to be some parts missing. I hope the prof can identify the critters from what I got here. You know, Roll Roll said, reflectively, as they cut hyperspace drive and emerge near their home planet. I keep thinking about that big one. I'd swear he was trying to tell us something. He kept pawing on the ground and making funny noises. Sounded like Earth. 
Oh, you make me tired, Blorbor declared. How can an animal tell us anything? This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was The Sportsman by Sylvia Jacobs, which was published in Vortex Science Fiction, January of 1953. In the background, we are currently listening to Luke Ferrari's Heterozygote. 